Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. in Manchester, New Hampshire, a CNN Democratic presidential town hall event. I'm Anderson Cooper. We are at a critical moment in the 2020 election. The president has just been acquitted. Iowa is still counting votes. And the first in the nation primary here in New Hampshire is just six days away. I want to begin right now and welcome to the stage former Vice President Joe Biden. Hey, sir. Hey, folks. We got a lot of questions from the audience. I just want to start out. Uh, the president just today has been uh, acquitted of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Perhaps you heard uh, he's already calling it. He says it's a victory on the impeachment hoax on Twitter. Is this a victory for the president? I can't imagine being president of the United States and having uh, uh, all one party plus someone from your own party vote to say you should be thrown out of office and view that as a victory. Um, as we stand here tonight, 86 percent of Iowa precincts uh, have uh, have finally reported their vote counts. You're currently in fourth, fourth place. You call what happened there a gut punch. What, what happened? Well, I think what happened. Well, look, let's put this in perspective. There are a total of, uh, what, 44 delegates are going to come out of that. And it looks like it's going to break down somewhere between seven and 15 among the top four of us. There, you need 1,900 delegates to become the president of the United States or to be, become the nominee. So it's a, I expect it to do better, and I expect it that uh, our organization would perform better. But uh, the fact is, uh, I'm happy to be here in New Hampshire. <laughs> All right. I think the crowd is happy to have you here. I want to go to the audience. This is, uh, this is Douglas Phelan. He's a family doctor from Concord. and currently is undecided. Douglas, welcome. Hey, Doc. How are you? Good. Thank you. So the Affordable Care Act did a lot of good for patients, but it also had flaws and then subsequently has been gutted by court decisions, most notably the removal of the individual mandate. How do you plan to lower premium costs in a market that still includes private insurance in a country where the individual mandate is gone and low risk, healthy patients do not enter the marketplace to help lower premiums? Well, first of all, I'm going to change. Number one, I'm going to restore the cuts that were made by administrative rule by this president of the United States. By the way, I was fascinated to learn he's the reason why we cover pre-existing conditions. I heard that in the State of the Union. I didn't know that before, Doc. But at any rate, um, what I'm going to do is restore the cuts, number one, reduce the cost of 
of out-of-pocket expenses and premiums that need to be paid, subsidizing it more. And I'm going to add a public option, a Medicare option for those who want it. So if you have your own private insurance, you've negotiated with your company and you have a good policy and you like it, you get to keep it. If they cancel the policy, you can immediately buy into the, the uh, what will become the Biden plan. And or you can, in fact, uh, if you don't have the money and you're qualified for Medicaid, you'd automatically be admitted into the plan. Number two, uh, I think that also that it's important to know that, you know, we made mental health parity and parity relating to drugs drug abuse that has to be covered by with parity, just like if you went and broke your arm or someone showed up in your office with, with, with another physical break or ailment. In addition to that, we made sure that we made, uh, I'm adding $1 billion in that plan for dealing with drug abuse and opioids. And that, in fact, is really important because you know what's happening in this state and all across America. I go into opioids later, but my, my generic point is that it costs $740 billion. That's a lot of money over 10 years. I can pay for it all by making sure that people pay their capital gains, not at 20%, but whatever, whatever their tax rate is. That would raise $800 billion and pay for everything. And it's not a $35 trillion plan over 10 years, which cannot get passed. Uh, I want to follow up on that. Senator Sanders, you, <clears throat> you have been... Um, I guess escalating your your uh, you're pointing out your differences with Senator Sanders on Medicare for all uh, why you're not supporting that. You've said that the middle class under Senator Sanders plan is going to pay a big, big premium. Is Senator Sanders being honest about his plan? Well, he was recently. He was on your show or someone else where he said they asked how much it's going to cost. He said nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> well, initially he said it was going to cost the middle class to raise their taxes for the middle class. Now he's saying nobody knows. Now, I've been around a while. I've gotten a lot of important bills passed through the Congress. Can you imagine going to Congress, Democrats or Republicans, saying, by the way, let's have Medicare for all. How much is it going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? Well, I don't know. We'll all find out later. But just to be realistic, you've got to level with the American people. Tell them the truth, what you think your plan is going to cost, the estimate of it, how you're going to pay for it, and how you're going to get it done. I was able to get with President Obama uh, the Obama plan passed. I was on the floor making sure we got every vote. I've done it. I know how to get it done, and I can get it done right away, not in 10 years. Um, I want to introduce you to Kenneth Berlin. He's a retired financial uh, systems manager. He also serves as the vice chair for the New Hampshire State Commission on Aging. He's from Manchester and is still undecided. Kenneth? Welcome, Mr. Vice President. Thank you. It's an honor. How exactly will you protect Social Security? I'll tell you exactly I'm going to do it. Number one, you know, there's two pieces of the protection. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I have a little bit of, I've been talking too much, a little bit of, a little hoarse. Number one, I'm going to make sure that we, in fact, are able to have Social Security for the students here when their time comes to be, uh, when Social Security is available. Two, I'm going to make sure that we're in a position where we can, in fact, see to it that those folks who lost a spouse or Social Security payment was reduced or they're outliving way beyond their, their coverage that they, in fact, can have, their, have it raised. You say, well, how are you going to do that, Biden? Right now, as you know better than most, we pay about 6.2% out of your salary, up to roughly $130,000. I've been proposing for some time that we do the same thing for everybody making over $400,000. So, for example, 
you in fact make 60 grand, you get two point, you know, uh, excuse me, 6.2% taken out of your salary. If you make 130, you get 2.6. If you're making a million, you know, you just get the same, you pay the same exact amount as someone making 130. By moving to increase the tax, by the keep the tax at 6.2 for people making every dollar over $400,000, we can pay for everything I'm talking about. And you know, we can make it solvent, solvent for all these kids here. That's why it's important. That's what I do. I want to follow up. Senator Sanders uh, has taken issue with your record on Social Security. He says that you're no defender, his words, of the program. How do you convince voters that you are? Well, I just have him look at the facts. Look at Paul Krugman. New York Times said it's a lie. He's simply dead wrong. Look what PolitiFact said. They've misrepresented my position on Social Security. And whether he did it or not, his supporters put out a, 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 a clip that took out of context what I said. Folks, I've been a strong supporter of Social Security my whole career. And the fact of the matter is, I, one has a concrete plan as to how to make it work, and I think I can get it done. Uh, I want you to meet uh, Trevor McCaden. He's an independent from Rollingsford, who's a uh, student here at St. Anselm College. He, cur- he is currently undecided. Trevor? <clears throat> hey, Trevor. Vice President Biden, you suggest that American fossil fuel workers learn how to code. What do you say to many of the baby boomer generation who are too young to retire but feel that they are too old to embrace drastic career change at this stage in their life? What I say is that we're going to provide significant opportunities. We're going to create six million new jobs. For example, if you are the the IBW just endorsed me today, the International Brotherhood of Electric Workers, they're going to be affected by moving in the direction of getting to net zero emissions. But every new every new plan we have for infrastructure has to be green. For example, we're going to be able to place 500,000, 500,000 charging stations along every new highway we build. We can afford to do that, and it's easy. We're going to own the electric, the electric vehicle market. We're going to create millions of jobs, millions of jobs. We're going to invest, for example, we have a circumstance where we invest more money in new technologies that, in fact, will get us to net zero emissions than we spent sending the man to the moon. We should become the net, net exporters, the net exporters of this technology. In addition, the next president of the United States not only has to deal with whether or not you're going to get to net zero and have a plan, we make up 15 percent of the world's problems. And we have to demonstrate we are part of the solution, a significant part. But 85 percent of the, of the pollution that we deal with comes from the rest of the world. And so I was part of putting together the Paris Climate Accord. I would immediately rejoin it and I would immediately bring in the single biggest polluters in the first hundred days to the United States and say we have to up the ante in how we move forward and we will create significant jobs. The transition will be made for people who, in fact, are in the business now and the fossil fuel business as well to be able to move to other uh, to other incomes that can make a significant amount of money that they're making. But it takes some retraining. It's going to have to happen. Mr. Vice President, this is uh, Martha Dickerson. She's a library assistant here at St. Anselm College. Welcome, Martha. Hey, Martha. How are you? Hello, Vice President Biden. We hear about the plight of the middle class a lot. How come there's so little mention of the working poor? People have two and three jobs cobbled together, none of them with benefits. They're too exhausted to spend time with their kids. How would you go about raising wages? Well, I do it three ways. First of all, I talk about the working poor all the time. I know they call me middle class Joe because they think I'm middle class Joe because I'm concerned about 
the middle class. And the reason I'm concerned about the middle class is to find an avenue to get to the middle class, to be able to stay in the middle class. And when the middle class does well, everybody has a shot. People have a way up. And in fact, the wealthy do very well. The way I do it, first of all, no one should be working in the United States of America 40 hours a week and living in poverty. And that's why we have to raise nationally the standard of $15 an hour for every worker in America, number one. Number two, we have to be in a position where we provide for the opportunities at the early stages. And you're a librarian. How many of the folks that you, when you weren't a librarian at a college, how many folks do you know who come into the library, in fact, don't have any idea how to proceed? Well, I propose that we, for example, triple the amount of money we spend for Title I schools, that is, disadvantaged schools economically. They don't have the wherewithal to invest the money in their schools. Right now, Title I schools, and there are many of them here in New Hampshire, all across America, they get, they get $15 billion a year. I raise that to $45 billion a year, which means every single solitary child, age three, four, and five, will be in school not daycare, school. And every university, including this great one and others, point out that if you do that, you increase exponentially the prospect of that child being able to go all the way through, all the way through high school and go beyond high school. Somewhere between 48 and 54% of the people who go to preschool, and I mean age three, four, and five, not daycare, school. You, in fact, wipe out the discrepancies that exist when you come from families that don't have opportunities. Thirdly, I raise teachers' salaries, raise teachers' salaries in that process. Fourthly, we make sure that we double the number of school psychologists and school nurses. How many times in this state have you heard, if you're all from New Hampshire, where the school district makes a choice between do we hire two more teachers or a nurse? What do we do? And it provides social workers because we know an awful lot can be done If I only have one dollar to spend, I spend it preschool rather than post high post uh, high school. But we can do both. I can get into that later. But the biggest thing is to provide the opportunity to be able to get these jobs, equip everybody, everybody, no matter what their zip code is, to have access to a good paying job in the middle class that, in fact, gets the middle class in the 21st century, no matter what zip code you're born in. Mr. Vice President, yesterday, um Uh, I want to ask you about something that happened at the State of the Union. You were awarded the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor by President Obama. Um, And I'm wondering, it was obviously a very emotional moment for you. I remember uh, the ceremony last night. President Trump awarded the same medal to Rush Limbaugh. I'm wondering what you thought when you learned about that. Rush Limbaugh spent his entire time on the air dividing people, belittling people, talking about how, talking about blacks in ways, African-Americans in ways that, anyway, I do feel badly, and I mean this sincerely, that he's suffering from a terminal illness. So he has my empathy and sympathy no matter what his background is. But the idea that he, as a State of the Union, receives a, a... a medal that is of the highest honor that can be committed, given to a civilian, I find, um, quite frankly, driven more by uh, trying to maintain your right-wing political credentials than it is anything else. I mean, if you read some of the things that Rush has said about people, their backgrounds, their ethnicity, how he speaks to them, I don't think he speaks... uh, I don't think he understands the American code, decency and honor. I, I just really, 
But look, this is Donald Trump. I want to take a, uh, a short break. We're going to be back. We're going to be back more with uh, former Vice President Joe Biden right after this. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Vice President Joe Biden for the first of several uh, CNN Democratic live town halls. Uh, Vice President uh, Biden, this is uh, Jennifer Cuna. She works for a special education nonprofit. She's from Manchester and is currently undecided. Jennifer. Thanks for what you do. Thank you very much, Vice President Biden. Many young voters are concerned that you're an establishment candidate. They feel that you're out of touch, especially among young female voters. How do we know that you're in tune with the needs, priorities and philosophies of the younger generation? Look at my record. I, uh, no one's done more. I've, I've found as a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, young people, in fact, uh, are very concerned about guns. I have the most advanced plan for guns. I'm the only one that's taken on the, the NRA and beaten them. In terms of climate change, one of the great concerns of the generation, the younger generation, and I've laid out clearly a plan that has been widely accepted as being very forward-leaning, I find that they are considerably concerned about education and how they can pay for their education, get access to it. That's why I propose free community college and being able to write off your student debt if, in fact, you volunteer and you get involved in an agency working for, for example, women's organizations. Uh, I, uh, so I find myself in a position where I think it's mainly because I've been out of office for three years that I don't think a lot of the younger people know my record. I'm very proud of the record. And I think the more they see of it, the more I'm likely to get the kind of support I get on campuses around the country. Uh, Vice President uh, Biden, this is uh, George Matthews from Nashua. He uh, works in manufacturing and is also currently undecided. Welcome, George. Hey, George. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has interfered with Georgian, Ukrainian, French, German, UK and US, U.S. elections. He has occupied territories of Georgia and Ukraine. What will you do as president of the United States to end all of these attacks which some have said are acts of war. Well, I think they are. They're acts they are violating our sovereignty. I'm the guy who, uh, in fact, uh, went over to uh, our NATO colleagues and spoke with the, uh, worked out with a group of NATO leaders and European leaders, an agreement before their last series of elections a year and a half ago, where we got everybody running for office to take a pledge that, in fact, they would, in fact, let anyone know that if there was any interference taking place, they would reject any outside help. And one of the very reasons why the president got impeached is because he went to outside folks seeking help in this in in our election. But I think we have to go. We have to understand that Vladimir Putin, when the president stands before the on the world stage in terms of Vladimir Putin, and this is something I know a lot about because I've spent a lot of time with Vladimir Putin alone and with other people. This is a guy who, in fact, is not anything remotely approaching a Democrat with a small d. His entire objective is to weaken Eastern Europe, bring down NATO so that he does not have to face the constituency that, in fact, he faces now in terms of impact on his economy and or impact at all on anything. And so what we have to do is we have to make sure, make it clear to to Vladimir Putin 
By the way, you know, uh, Facebook said they're not going to take down ads, even if they're true. Well, guess what? They've taken down thousands of Putin ads and thousands of Russian ads where they identified that they're putting up bots for me. Thousands of them mis- misrepresenting me, saying lies about me. So what we should be doing is everybody should take the pledge that if they see anything, they have any any information at all candidates. They will not accept any help. They will not get involved. They will expose the fact that, in fact, he is interfering. His, the entire Russian apparatus is interfering. And look what's happened. The president stands on the stage at the G20 before the whole world, looks at Vladimir Putin and says, when they asked, did you raise with his interference? He said, well, he told me he didn't interfere. Why would Vladimir Putin want to interfere in our election? When 18, 18, of our security agency said, we have absolute proof. I guarantee you there's proof. And what are we doing? What are our friends in the Congress doing? They're blocking the ability to make sure we secure the election. We should be making available to all the states a way in which we will help them fund the change in their electoral process so that they can have the machines that are not able to be tapped, that paper ballots, et cetera. It costs a lot of money. There's a, there's a, there is a bill on the desk of Mitch McConnell to be able to bring up. What are we doing? Why are we putting our head in the sand and pretending that these guys don't want to interfere in our election? They have, they are, and they'll continue to be. It'll be an overwhelming priority for me when I'm president of the United States to see to it that ends, and there'll be consequences if it doesn't. Looking back. Looking back in the final year of of the administration of you and, and President Obama, Was there more, looking back, was there more you could have done to prevent Russian interference? In retrospect, there is something, look, we found out, we were informed by the agency, the Director of Central Intelligence, that there was evidence they were interfering in the electoral process, trying to break in everything to machines, to change voter registration, to encourage people to have doubts about the legitimacy of our electoral process, okay? But that was in August. We then went to... What there, there's a gang of six. You're able to have call the president can call together a group of Democrats and Republicans leadership and tell them something that is highly classified because it was at the time and say, we all ought to speak out against this. Because what Barack Obama was worried about was if we spoke out against it without having more proof and support, then in fact, what would have happened is they said, we're trying to interfere in the election. And so it wasn't until after we got out of office that before we left the White House, that we knew the detail of how deep they were. But when we went to Mitch McConnell and to the the Republican leadership in the House, they said, no, no, we don't want any part of pointing this out. We don't want any part of getting involved in this. That's what happened. We didn't know for certain hard data until the election was over. We had clear, overwhelming circumstantial evidence that was being done, and we wanted everyone to speak out. And President Obama did confront Putin, did confront Putin at a meeting saying that, stop it, stop it. He denied he was doing it. We believed he was doing it. But if we, the concern was, imagine what would happen if on the eve of the election, we came out and said, the Russians are trying to damage Hillary Clinton. I think it would have been, it would have blown up in a way. So we needed everybody to say, he's not damaging, not damaging anyone in particular. This is what's going on. But our Republican leadership refused to participate. 
When uh, when you talk about consequences for Vladimir Putin, if it continues to interfere in elections, um, what kind of consequences are you talking about? The kind of consequences I'm talking about are dealing with their cyber security invasions of our security. And we had to make it clear that we would respond in kind. The next the next confrontation is less, less likely to be a nuclear exchange than a cyber exchange. And what we have to worry about is what are they going to do? We have to organize not only, you said, we, I spoke to a businessman, a manufacturer. You, ha, you not only have to get the, the agencies involved, you've got to get American business involved to make it clear that we have a system by which we can all deal together with making sure we know when there is a cyber breach. With regard to Putin, we should be, I, well, let me put it this way. I know President Putin, and he knows I know him, and he knows me, and he knows that there will be similar consequences if he engages, engages in trying to interfere with our election by moving in a direction to seek greater sanctions against Russia, because they're doing it, as you pointed out, sir, all across, all across Europe and other parts of the world. But one more thing, we also have to make it clear the Chinese the Chinese are engaging in similar practices, not nearly as in-depth, not nearly as significant, but they're real. We have to stand up and organize the world. The world is not a self-organizing operation. It requires American leadership. And what's happened is we've lost our credibility around the world to convince our allies and our friends that, in fact, we are on the right page that we should all work together because we've walked away from them. We've embraced Putin. We've embraced Kim Jong-un. We have gone out and and dealt with thugs in ways that we've never dealt with them before. And we poked our finger in the eye of our allies. I mean, literally, literally poked our finger in the eye of our allies. And they're unwilling to trust us. Look what's happened with regard to Anderson, with, with regard to what happened recently in Iran. Have you ever heard of it? You can't answer, I know. But has anyone ever heard of a time when our European allies, our NATO allies, made a moral equivalence between us and Iran, saying, both of you, stop it? Did you ever think, any of you, any of you military women or men, did you ever think you'd see a time when our NATO allies would say, stop, both of you, both of you, because we have distanced ourselves so badly from our allies. And if you think I'm exaggerating, look what happened on the 70th anniversary of NATO. Okay, 70th anniversary, a great historic accomplishment. After the president left, there was an unfortunate circumstance where our allies, the leaders of the free world, were making fun of Trump, pointing out they didn't think he knew anything, they didn't trust him, etc. It wasn't just an embarrassment to the United States as a country. It was devastating in terms of the, it says a lot about whether or not the rest of the world and the intelligence communities are willing to work with us, share everything with us. It's a significant problem. Like I said, the world is not self-organizing. When we create the vacuum, the bad guys step in. And we've got to reunite the democratic nations of the world in a way that we used to exist, existed when we left office. I want to meet uh, Gabriel uh, uh, Jeever. He's a student at Dartmouth College who uh, interned for the, uh, the New Hampshire Young Democrats. He's currently undecided. Gabriel. Thank you, Vice President. Today, Bashar al-Assad, a man guilty of war crimes, remains in power in Syria. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians have died in the devastating civil war. 
Back in 2012, you advised President Obama against arming and training Syrian opposition forces. Do you stand by your decision? No, I think you got that wrong. I didn't say that. The issue at the time was whether or not we should use military force if they were moving with chemical weapons. What I did say was we should not, and the president agreed, and the military did, we should not be sending a large number of ground troops into Syria. What I did help do is organize an organization made up of Arab countries, Arab fighters and the Kurds together that took on ISIS. And they prevented the caliphate, 61 nations, and, we, and with a small contingent of American forces, American special forces, training them. 10,000 Kurds died in defeating ISIS, reestablishing the caliphate. And what happened? What happened? This president of the United States, dealing with a man I know incredibly well, the prime minister of Turkey, what did he do? He, he, he yielded to Erdogan, and he said that we would withdraw our forces from along the Turkish border between Turkey and Syria, allowing, allowing the Turks to move in on the Kurds, who they don't like, the Kurds having to move to protect themselves and their families, ISIS being put in a position where they could reconstitute themselves. And what happened? Close your eyes and remember what you saw on television. What you saw on television. Our troops coming out in up-armored Humvees, our military men and women, against the advice of all the military advisors to the president. Against the advice. And you had Kurdish women holding up babies saying, please don't leave us, don't leave us. Remember what you saw? Those of you who are military personnel, you saw those men and women in our military in uniform with their heads down. They're ashamed. They're ashamed. Who's going to trust us? We made a commitment, a sacred commitment, just like we did in NATO. We made a sacred commitment that an attack on one is an attack on all. And what this president treats NATO like it's a protection racket. If you don't give us more, we're not going to protect you. What's going on here? This is not America. And we're losing our ability to lead the world for our own safety's sake. Mr. Vice President, this is Patricia Henking. She's a pastor from Merrimack. Patricia, welcome. Pastor, how are you? Thank you. Uh, Vice President Biden, what advice would you give a college student who has struggled with stuttering since he was a young child? You know, uh, um, stuttering, you think about it, is the only handicap that people still laugh about, that still humiliate people about. And they don't even mean to. When I was a kid, I talked like that. And some of you smile. If I said to you when I was a kid, I had a cleft palate and people made fun of me, or I had a withered arm, no one would smile. No one would smile. It's a debilitating situation. I deal with about 15 stutterers I keep in contact with all the time. I met with a young man, I will not name him, day before yesterday. Took him in after my staff got upset because we did a town meeting like this, and I met him. I could tell when I met him, and you can tell too, Reverend. You see the face. You can see the anxiety in their faces. And he looked at me and said, ha, ha, ha. And I said, why don't you and I go back and... In, in, my, in the green room here, and I'll show you how right my speech is. Did you see the movie The King's Speech? Well, you should see it if you haven't. What The King's Speech is all about is a man with enormous courage standing up in the middle of the beginning of war, speaking to his countrymen, 
and saying he needed help. The guy who actually helped him write that speech knew how I do my speeches, how I mark up my speeches. I, I go through so that I make sure that I try to get a circumstance where I don't have to go quickly. And what happens is that if you notice, most people who, in fact, are Mel Tillerson, great singer, never stutters, but has difficulty speaking, difficulty talking, stutters badly. A lot of people are like that. And we can overcome it. And the point I make to these young people that I still work with is that, in fact, it's critically important for them not to judge themselves by their speech, that not let that define them. And I get in the phone and I work, and the hardest thing to do is to talk on the telephone, is talk on the telephone, or to read out loud, to look at a paper and have to read something. And so I work with these students, and when I was up at Syracuse University, I work with the School of Speech Pathology as a student. I, I was not, I'm not a professional. But as a law student, I would, I would spend time with him. There was a young man whose first name was Bruce from a town that starts with B. I don't want to identify him without his permission. He's doing very well now, working for IBM. But this is a guy who and he can speak now. But here's what's happening. It's still halting. And so what I say to any, anybody out there, and any of the people you work with, young people who, who stutter, I'll give you my phone number, not a joke. And they can call me. I'll give you a private number. Because it's really important they know. They know. They want to say, you, you really did stutter? And, you, and I still occasionally, when I find myself really tired, c- catch myself saying something like that. It has nothing to do with your intelligence quotient. It has nothing to do with your intellectual makeup. It has something to do with going back a long time relating to, I think, part of it is confidence and how you were, what, what circumstance you faced. I know I'm talking too long about this, but I feel desperately, I, I feel strongly about this. In the King's speech, the fellow who was, in fact, actually helping write the speech, found the speech in the attic and sent me a copy of it because he found out that I do my speeches the same way. So what I do if I say the Democratic presidential town hall is tonight on CNN, I'll say the presidential town hall slash is on CNN tonight slash. It's going to have the following people slash Anderson Cooper is going to speak slash. It forces me to think in terms of not rushing to be able to talk in a way. And then you begin it. It's really hard. It's really hard to say to, for example, you know, you say, well, let me tell you what I want to talk about. Because you have to break it up because you get so nervous when you say, let me tell you what I want to talk about. So there's a lot we can do. And Re- Re- Reverend, I'm happy to. I really mean it. I have a one young man that I met. I don't have permission to use his name, but I met his mom. She was a very involved with, in Tennessee with Democratic politics. I could tell when I saw him, when he put his hand out, he went like, like this. And I said, why don't you and I go back and help me write my speech here? He ended up being able, he was in sixth, seventh grade. He spoke at his class commencement, and he went on to a great university where he, in fact, is doing well. But it still is something that you have to be able to work yourself through because you will slip once in a while and it's it's embarrassing and it shouldn't be it doesn't define who he is or who she is or who they are i'm sorry but anyway i feel 
It's, it's a big Actually, uh, I just want to follow up on that. My, my mom actually stuttered, and even at 95, when the last couple of years, the last year of her life, she still had a had a stutter from time to time when she got tired, as you said. How were you able to? How were you actually able to overcome it? I mean, how did you learn how to do that Who, with the writing? Well, what I did was I I didn't have professional help, but I had three things going for me. I had a mother who had a backbone like a ramrod, and she'd look, she'd go, Joey, look at me. Look at me, Joey. You're handsome. You're smart. You're a good athlete, Joey. Don't let this define you, Joey. Remember who you are, Joey. You can do it. And so every time I'd walk out, she'd reinforce me. I know, I, I know that sounds silly, but it really matters. The worst thing a parent can do is finish the kid's sentence. Mom, I want, want, want. you want what? Don't finish their sentences, number one. Number two... What I found was I practiced. You know, all my colleagues kid me, as you heard, in, about always quoting Irish poets. Well, I had a book of Yeats poetry because my uncle Ed Finnegan loved Yeats. And we had a, a small bedroom with four bunks in it. I mean, two bunks, it's four beds. And occasionally he was a traveling salesman. When he'd be down in Delaware, he'd sleep with us. And he'd have, and, on the, and I'd get up in the night, in the middle of the night with a flashlight. And I'd look in the mirror. And I would try to memorize what I could. Another small book on Emerson quotes. I remember the first one, looking in the mirror with a flashlight in my face because you get embarrassed because you can, you, you, you can torch your face. And it's embarrassing. And so I'd stand there and say, meek young men, grow up in libraries, believe in the duties to accept the words of Cicero, Bacon, and Locke, forgetful that Cicero, Bacon, and Locke were only young men in libraries with themselves, themselves. Or, you know, history teaches us not to hope on this side of the grave, but then once in a lifetime, that long-for tidal wave of justice rises up and hope and history rhyme. I would practice and practice and practice because I was determined, determined to overcome it. I was led to believe I could, and I basically did. And it's not appropriate for me to ask you about your mom, but your mom was an incredible lady. (laughs) Uh, No, no, she was an incredible lady. And the idea that Gloria Vanderbilt would be in a position where she stuttered. I want everybody to know that we can get through this. What's the one thing you're concerned about most when you have a real problem and it's devastating to you? And someone comes up and says, I know how you feel. And you know they have no idea how you feel. But someone who comes up to you and says, I've been through this. I can tell you. I know how you feel. You immediately say, tell me. Because all people are looking for is to say, you made it. It's possible to make it, huh? It's just possible to make it. How many of you lost someone to cancer? Raise your hand. Husband? Okay. When someone comes up, that person you lost, you say, I know how you feel. And they have no idea if they haven't lost somebody. But if they have, you know, you look at them and you say intuitively, I guess there's a way through. I guess I can make this. I guess I can make it. My mom had an expression. She said, Joey, you're defined by your courage and redeemed by your loyalty. Hmm. You're defined by your courage and redeemed by your loyalty. It's about, it really is about reaching out. And I, I, I don't want to make, I'm not making this political, but that's what I find so reprehensible about what's going on now. Making, we're not, in my household, and in mine with my children as well, <clears throat> no one is, no matter how bitter the fight is with a friend or anyone else, you could never say something about them that was true. Hear me? You could never say something. If they were ugly, you couldn't say you ugly so-and-so. You could say you're a jerk. No, I really mean it. Because things that people cannot control, 
It's not their fault. No one has a right. No one has a right to mock it and make fun of it, no matter who they are. I probably got in trouble for saying I empathize with Rush Limbaugh dying of cancer. I don't like him at all, but he's going through hell right now. He's a human being. We just have to, we just have to reach out a little more for people, man. We don't do it enough. We've got to heal this country. We didn't used to do it. We didn't, we didn't used to be like this. Somewhere where we weren't as a nation. We weren't like this. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yep. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Vice President Biden. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Welcome back. We are with former Vice President Joe Biden for a live town hall from New Hampshire. I want to go back to, uh, to the questions. Actually, I want to point out, uh, yesterday was World Cancer Day. Obviously, it's very personal for you. Your son, Bo, died from brain cancer. You had said in the past that, that if elected, we're going to cure cancer. Do you believe a cure is that close, potentially? Yes. Let me make uh, what, what I, I said two things. I said, I believe we can cure some cancers and make other cancers a, a chronic disease. There are over 204 different strains of cancer requiring different methodologies to deal with them. And we have so many tools available now. When the president allowed me to set up the moonshot, and then I left office and, and set up the Biden Cancer Initiative, we have 17 Nobel laureates and 21 heads of cancer hospitals. And what's happening, Anderson, that didn't happen before, is that docs don't play well in the sandbox together. It's not that they don't work like the devil. They're incredible. They're brilliant. They work hard. <clears throat> but back in 1970, when Nixon decided he was going to declare, two, it was, to declare war on cancer. He had no army. He had no capacity to do it, no ability to share data. Now we can do a million billion calculations a second. We're in a position where we can exchange information that's real. And what I was able to do with the cancer initiative was to turn this from an, an objective into a movement. And so one of the things that we now have is we've set up, for example, we know that... Uh, and this is what I mean by why I think we can make great progress. We've learning that, and some docs are out here, maybe oncologists as well, that in fact there may be multiple drugs needed to deal with a particular strain of cancer, just like with AIDS. And so, but the idea of getting four or five folks working on the, uh, uh, um, you know, people working on the same cancer strain to give you their information is almost zero. So sometimes it's best not to know a lot of details. So I suggest that why don't why are we able to go out and say, assign a numerical value to the effort you have underway and you and you and you. And we say, OK, the effort you have underway, if it, if you put your your research on the table and if we find a cure is worth 28 percent of whatever we do. Yours is 17 and go down the list. So we got a number of these major, uh, major operations to do that and put their drug on the table that they're working on. Because if, in fact, they don't have to spend another 50 or $100 million, but together we have outside people with expertise being able to come in and we made them, 
We've provided for immunity from suing, from being sued, no liability, et cetera. And so now, if in fact you get a cure for a particular drug, a particular specific strain of cancer, all of a sudden you get 28% or you get 16%. We did the same thing, cancer genome. When you, we go out now, we couldn't a long time ago, and you can take the cancer cell that in fact is one that the cancer you have, and you can sequence it. It costs about $1,000. And that sequencing it will let you know exactly what cancer you have. Imagine if we could take every single solitary sequenced cancer genome for a particular type of cancer and put it in one place, and you had a million samples. Well, we can do a million billion calculations per second. We can find out why that drug with the cancer, you have that cancer and you have that cancer, why it worked on you and didn't work on you. We can narrow down these incredibly specific differences that are there. For example, when I was asked to do it, to put together this cancer initiative, the moonshot for the president, the one great thing about him, he always gave me presidential authority so I could task anybody in administration. They asked me why I bought in the Department of Energy, why I bought, brought in NASA. Well, a lot of people, those of you who had someone dealing with cancer, particularly brain cancer, you find that the radiation sometimes does more damage than it helps. But guess who knows more about radiation than anybody in the world? NASA. NASA knows about it. So now they're using protons and finding out new technologies that proton beams can be used and not do as much damage. There's a whole lot of exciting things going on. And, and Anderson, what I'm going to do, and I really mean it, I think I can get it done, we have a thing called DARPA, you know well, the defense agency. They're the, they're the guys that came up with geopositioning, the Internet, a whole range of other things. And what they do, it's a separate agency works on specific programs that will, in fact, consequentially impact on our defense capabilities. Well, I want to do the same thing for the Department of Health and provide ARPA-H and invest, invest $50 billion in that agency, just like we do in the military side, get the leading Nobel laureates to decide which cancers are the most promising ones to find diseases on and do extensive research at a federal level on what to do about those particular, that, that particular cancer. We can make enormous progress. And by the way, you know, it's, the, I'm going on too long. Anyway, I feel very strongly about it, but I promise you, I guarantee you, we're going to be able to make enormous progress, enormous progress. Docs and researchers are now... In fact, working much harder. I've met with over 1,900 researchers. And guess what? They work like the devil, but they're not clinicians. So they don't have to come up like, the, but all of your cl- clinicians out there know, they come up and say, Doc, I know I'm not going to make it, but can you give me three more months just to, see your, just to see the baby? Doc, can you just give me, like my son, can you just give me a couple more months so I can watch my son speak at his... Uh, Moving, his, moving up ceremony in school. And this gets down to days. It gets down to, it's, not about, it's not about forever. It's days. It's months. And it can make a gigantic difference in people's lives and families' lives. And we're going to do it, I promise you. Mr. Vice President, I want you to meet uh, Frances Donahue. She's a retiree from Merrimack. She's currently undecided. Frances? Good evening, Vice President Biden. Good evening. What is your criteria for choosing a running mate? Are you available? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Look, 
It's incredibly presumptuous for me at this stage to be talking about a running mate. And I'll get killed if I get specific. But let me tell you what, rather than who, and there's a number of incredibly qualified people. The first criteria is that I have to, particularly in my case, because I'm older, just like with John McCain, I have to pick someone if, God forbid, something happened tomorrow, if I contracted what my son had or something like that, that the person's ready on day one to be president of the United States. But the second criteria is I'd very much like my administration to look like the country, like Barack and our administration look like. Black, brown, women, men, gay, straight, across the board to look like the country. As vice president, I think it would be wonderful to have a woman or a person of color as vice president. But the most important thing I've learned from my relationship with Barack, with I call him Barack, not president, because I don't want to con- confuse him with the president. Um, uh, at any rate, one of the things I learned is that no president in the 21st century can handle the job all by themselves. It's just too much that lands on your plate. So you've got to be prepared to turn over significant responsibility, as the president did with me on matters relating to a whole range of issues, and turn it over and run it from beginning to end. Like I, I, I gave him a memo on how we should deal with the $900 billion program we had, the Recovery Act, to keep us from going into depression. And I wish I hadn't, because at the State of the Union, he turned and said, and Sheriff Joe will do this. He's going to do it. He loved doing that at commencements. I mean, at commencement, at, at, at States of the Union. But when he did it, he gave me presidential authority. And the most important thing I know, I know is necessary from being vice president. We're listed by most presidential scholars and vice presidential scholars as the two closest president and vice presidents in American history. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I know we were close and became very close friends in our family. were. But I know one thing. You've got to be in the same page. Whomever I pick, man, woman, whoever it is, has to agree with my strategic vision for the country. We can disagree on tactic, but unless you agree, and they can be totally trustworthy, but if they don't agree on strategically where we are, it's impossible to say, here, you take this responsibility with regard to Ukraine, you take care of it, and just do it. You have to know you're on the same page. So that's the first criteria I know has to exist no matter who you pick. Mr. Vice President, thank you very much. Appreciate oh, thank it. You. Thank you. Thank and that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 